Hello, Pastor Friend. It's time for another Shepherdology episode. This one is very interesting as it deals with an issue that might be a sensitive one for some of you in your churches. There are issues that are third-rail issues in church life. You almost don't want to touch them, but this varies depending on the culture of your church. But in some settings, the issue of Bible translations is a very sensitive topic. I know for some of you, using a current English translation of the Bible is a given. That's standard practice in your church. But for others of you, it may be a sticking point. We're not going to engage the Bible translation debate so much on this episode, but I want you to meet a friend of mine who addresses this issue from a unique perspective. I had a conversation with Dr. Mark Ward recently, who wrote Authorized, the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. And we talked about pastoring people who hold a King James-only position. So let's get to the interview where I'll introduce Mark and hear his thoughts on this issue. I am very happy to have as our guest on Shepherdology today, Dr. Mark Ward. Mark is the academic editor at Lexham Press, a division of Faith Life, which you may know in connection with Logos Bible Software. And Mark has written textbooks and other books helpful to believers and to the church. And Mark's most recent book is Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. And there's a video documentary also produced by Faith Life that goes with that. And I have read Authorized. I highly recommend it. I would summarize it as a brotherly approach to expressing reasons that we should use a current English translation of the Bible. And for our pastor friends today here on Shepherdology, the focus of this podcast is shepherding church members who hold a King James-only position. And Mark wants to help pastors approach this with facts and with understanding. So, Dr. Mark Ward, welcome. And can you just take a minute and tell us a little bit about what you mean by King James-onlyism and what your burden is in addressing it? Pastor Taylor, it is a real pleasure to be on the Shepherdology podcast and serving the pastors that you serve. What do I mean by KJV-onlyism? That's actually a difficult question, and um, the very terms are fought over. That's part of the debate. Many debates turn on terminology, and this is one of them. Personally, it's kind of a I-know-it-when-I-see-it thing, but Generally speaking, King James onlyism is any viewpoint that boils down to you really ought to be using this Bible, the King James Version, and you really shouldn't be using other Bibles. It might extend as far as saying that the King James Version itself is perfect and inspired by God, or it might be as mild as a preference that doesn't really allow for other people's preferences. That's KJV onlyism. What is my burden in addressing it? Well, I probably have two burdens. One is I don't like to see division over things that the Bible doesn't address, and the Bible doesn't tell us which English Bible translation to use. It really is that simple. Another major burden I have is to see people reading their Bibles and praying every day so they can grow, grow, grow. I want people to read the Bible in their own English so that they can understand it as much as possible. 
You will never be able to make every part of the Bible equally accessible to everyone. Peter said that Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. The unlearned and the unstable, the King James translate this this way, uh, rest or twist these things. Uh, We're never going to be able to avoid that. I'm not saying we should dumb down the Bible. I'm saying that we should remove unnecessary barriers created by four plus centuries of language change. That's what the King James Version is, 400 plus years old. And through no fault of the King James translators and through no fault of us, I think there are elements in it that are unnecessarily difficult to understand. And it's my burden to see Bible readers get past those difficulties, partly by teaching people how to notice them and partly by encouraging people to make use of other good English Bible translations, not to get rid of the King James Version, but to pick up the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, etc., etc. Great, thank you. So, Mark, you believe that Christian leaders should proactively move toward using a current English translation, if they're not already, and encourage their constituency to do the same. Now, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so if you want to rephrase that, please feel free. But if, if that's accurate of what, what your belief is, uh, why is that? Absolutely. You can put those words in my mouth anytime. Now, I, I do, however, want to make a distinction between the scriptural principle and application of that principle to our world, where I think there is more genuine room for good brothers to disagree. Here's what I would say. Matthew 28 says that we've got to teach all nations, disciple them. We've got to teach them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. And Christians, like our believing uh, brothers, the Jews before us, have always believed that that entails translation. The Jews had the Septuagint that, before the time of Christ, translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the lingua franca, the common language of that day, which was Koine Greek. Koine just means common, common Greek, the language of the people, of the plowboy, you might say, as William Tyndall did. And then I would think even more importantly from my argument, 1 Corinthians 14 is a passage in which Paul repeatedly says in various ways, edification requires intelligibility. Now, that's where I do not see any room for disagreement. That is what the Bible teaches. Paul is not just talking about tongues. If he is, then we cessationist churches don't have any use for 1 Corinthians 14. We might as well not even bring it up. But I just can't be happy with a situation in which people are using words in church that other people have little or no chance of understanding. Even I like to watch uh, Evensong at an English cathedral. They've been putting it up on YouTube and I've been listening to some of the Anglican service and a lot of it is so beautiful and actually biblical. But there's one point at which the minister reads this portion of the liturgy from the Book of Common Prayer, I believe, and instead of calling Jesus, Jesus, he calls him Jesu. And I just thought, why do you have to call him Jesu? Like, who says? Okay, it's a tradition. Why do you keep the tradition? I even asked an Anglican evangelical friend of mine, and I wasn't really persuaded by his answer. At every point, I want to use language that's accessible to people because 1 Corinthians 14 tells me that edification requires intelligibility. Both that, That's true both 
for believers and unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about the unbeliever coming into the assembly full of people speaking in untranslated tongues and thinking, you guys are crazy, which I think is exactly what happens at charismatic and Pentecostal churches when unbelievers enter. Um, But uh, if he says you use intelligible language, then they're going to fall down and confess that God is in you of a truth. Now, where can I see some room for disagreement among good brothers? Um, I would say that the big question is, does the King James Version meet that standard? And I would say largely it does. Largely the King James Version is intelligible still to this day. But when we're talking about the Word of God, I don't want something that is largely intelligible, 95% intelligible, um, maybe 90, <laughs> um, depending on your audience, maybe 40. I want something that is as accessible as possible while still being accurate. And I, in my work, have done something that most pastors, of course, aren't trained and suited to do, uh, though I think with a little help from somebody like me, they'll see quickly what I'm onto. I'm looking at Elizabethan English from a linguist's perspective. I'm taking a principle we all agree on, edification requires intelligibility, and I'm, I'm applying that to something people don't always see with as much clarity. I show how dead words and false friends, I call them in the King James Version, make the King James less than sufficiently intelligible to meet the standard of 1 Corinthians 14. And the contribution of my work is to look at the King James Version in real detail, and uh, linguistically, from an English-only perspective, setting aside Greek and Hebrew and the quality of translation and style and you know theory of translation, all of which are excellent in the King James, and just pointing out, you know, because language has changed over the last nearly 500 years now, because a bunch of the King James actually goes back to Tyndall, you know, which is a, almost a full 500 years old, language has changed in ways that the plowboy, the man on the street, shouldn't be expected to keep up with, and that's why. I would say, yeah, we ought to be moving away, certainly from insisting that everybody use the King James Version or use it exclusively. I, I base that application to shepherds of other churches, not on my private opinion, but on 1 Corinthians 14 and Paul's teaching there about edification re- requiring intelligibility. That was the conviction that I came to and actually the passage really that uh, guided me Mark, when I led the church I was pastoring at the time uh, into um, the position of using a current English translation because my my burden was that the people should have the Word of God in their spoken language, and that included every age group. It also applied to the people in the community around us, and if we were going to spread the gospel and make disciples in our community— they needed, and I think that's that's um, not too strong of a word, they desperately needed the Word of God in their spoken language, just like we would do on in any mission field situation where you translate the Scriptures into the current spoken language of the people. So I'm, I'm right with you there. Well, we're talking about pastoring, and, and so let's say that a pastor has a church member or, or just somebody attending their church even who has a very strong... King James-only position, the kind that you've described that can be divisive and harmful to the body of Christ, and is is vocal about it and is causing a difficulty in the church. What, what are your thoughts on how a pastor should interact with that person? Well, this teaching doesn't have to be divisive. That is, you can privately hold opinions about the superiority of the King James Version 
and and just know that the Christian unity in my church is more important than this private opinion. Um, that does happen, but you know, more frequently we become aware of this issue because somebody is campaigning. Now, campaigning itself isn't necessarily wrong. I mean, I'm campaigning in one sense right now by holding these opinions that I do. Um, we ought to, in one sense, campaign for the truth. But um, there have been times in my life when I have uh, set aside my liberties and, for example, written textbooks that use the King James Version. I write Bible textbooks still uh, for BJU Press. Even though I would not choose the King James, I bowed to the um, desires of the people who buy BJU Press products, and enough of them care to uh, maintain use of the King James, that that's what they choose to do. So I'm saying I am willing to give up my liberties uh, for others. And yes, there are King James only people who are willing to do the same. But when somebody isn't doing that, when they're vocal, um, I think what could be more divisive than to go around telling other people in your local church that their Bibles are corrupt and mistaken? The, the reason that's so divisive is that it strikes at the heart of what Protestant evangelical Christianity is. It's a faith in which we give people not only the privilege, but the responsibility of reading their Bibles. And when they don't know Greek and Hebrew, they are at the mercy of, in one sense, translators. They have to trust somebody. And somebody who goes around saying that your Bible is corrupt and you ought to use the right one, the true one, the only really reliable one, is sowing, um, sowing doubt and thereby sowing discord. And I think of Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are evident. And we're used to the initial elements of this list, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. We expect sex and illicit sex to be the very first thing on the list, and it is. But just as many items on this list of works of the flesh are like this, enmity, strife, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. In fact, depending on how you count, how do you categorize these works of the flesh, maybe even more of them are talking about divisiveness than talking about sexual immorality. So somebody who goes around in the church telling others that their Bible is wrong and they need to use the right Bible, they are manifesting the works of the flesh. And that is a, a fit, most definitely a fit subject for the pastor to talk about. First with that individual, and then if need be, if the problem continues, talking about it to the church more broadly. Yeah, any issue um, that, um, that that becomes a point of contention and the body's divided, um, a pastor has to deal with that, has to be proactive in dealing with that, with the spirit of the individual, the actions, and all of that, regardless, really, of, of the issue. Well, what about uh, somebody who is a member of the church and they, they hold the King James-only position privately? Again, maybe they're just completely convinced that for themselves and their family— that's the translation that they should use and the only one they will use, but they're not pushing it on others. Um, what, what would the relationship of a pastor look like with that person? I have a situation like that in my church. I, I haven't checked very recently about you know checking their temperature on this, but uh, and if anybody in my church listened to this podcast, they would probably know who I'm talking about, so of course I want to be careful, but it's easy for me to say, and this would not be embarrassing to anyone, I really love these this family, this brother and this sister and their children. We are close friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, and I have really admired the way that they have treated this issue, um, and they've helped me 
by just reminding me that I can't grandstand, I can't crusade, I've got to be careful and gracious when I speak about this topic. To me, that's been so, so helpful. Never in my entire relationship with them have they shown an arrogance or pride toward me, and God forbid that I would show that toward them. So I've always felt that this is God's just subtle, maybe not so subtle reminder to me that good people can differ um, over issues like this. I would say, however, that a pastor ought to be free to apply 1 Corinthians 14 to this situation and to do so publicly, to do so carefully, to do so graciously, and not have to fear that he's going to step on toes. So if that requires a private conversation in advance where you sort of agree to disagree, maybe that would be good. Um, uh, Or in my case, even that wasn't necessary. They were so gracious that they allowed me to teach on bibliology in Sunday school and asked perceptive questions and weren't quite persuaded, but it didn't damage the relationship. My sense is that that's not common. This issue tends to cause a divide between people. But if you're blessed with somebody who has that kind of Christian spirit and isn't going to make it a point of contention, I'm not going to push hard uh, on them. They're not forcing anybody else or even trying to influence somebody else in the church. I'm going to pray for them and give them time. I mean, we're not using the King James Version in our church, so uh, I know that at some level they're accepting of this, and um, I'm praying that they'll see the the value in using a contemporary English translation. I'm I'm willing to leave it at that. Excellent. Thank you. Usually the conversation, or we might call it the debate, uh, gets into the topic of textual criticism. Pastors who've been to seminary have a familiarity with that. Uh, many of their people, people in their churches, do not, although some, especially with this issue, have done some reading or heard some teaching on that. So, uh, again, shepherding a church, shepherding a flock, pastoring people in the area of this issue, how should pastors deal with the area of textual criticism? This is a question I want to turn back on you after I give my answer, because I have the experience of the academic side, and I've written a fair bit about this and put out resources online like the KJV Parallel Bible that I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but I, and I have actually helped shepherd a church through this, but you've done it at a, a much, I don't know, more public level. Your church was much larger and there's just more potential for division there. So I'm going to ask you in a minute, but here, here would be my answer. Um, we can't get away and shouldn't get away from the world that, that God has given us in his good providence. There are textual variants out there among the manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible and of the Greek New Testament. Nobody out there denies this. The the variants, the differences between the manuscripts, they exist. The question is, what do we do with them? And uh, most modern translations today, uh, I, w- I, I guess I would say all prominent evangelical English Bible translations make some mention in footnotes of these differences. And I feel that my duty as a aspiring elder, I'm on the elder track at my church, and I've been teaching like an elder now for almost five years here, and before that in another church back east, um, I feel that my duty to equip people to handle the footnote that says certain manuscripts read, you know, even the King James Version in 1611 had footnotes like this in the New Testament. I don't want somebody to be bowled over like, whoa, I didn't know there were variants. Oh no, what's the true word of God? So I think it's really important for pastors to inoculate their people against any version onlyism. 
by going ahead and having a bibliology series in which they bring up the delicate topic of textual criticism, and in which, uh, and I think that pastors should mention textual criticism at those few points in the New Testament, like Romans 5.1, where it really is important for interpretation, and where people who are in your church are going to be holding different translations that actually do say something different. I think it's better to bring it up rather than to gloss over it. But you, uh, Dean, please, I want to hear what you would have to say about this topic. Ask yourself that question. Okay, sounds good. Well, it, it was an interesting process, and I determined to take several months and teach through the whole subject of the Scriptures. I started out with the concept, God has spoken, we have his word and then built everything on that and talked about you know how every it all originated as God inspired the scriptures and then how ultimately it was canonized and uh, the, the 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 body of believers in existence at the time recognized those those uh, scriptures that had the marks of inspiration and brought those together and then uh, transmission, you know, of course, how how those have been copied and uh, in, in multiple, you know, different um, locations and and different people over time, and and through all of that, just pointing out the fact that God, in His sovereignty and His wisdom, used uh, multiple streams, I guess you'd say, of that transmission to ensure that his word was providentially preserved down through the ages for us today. And what a miracle that is, really. But then there's also the human element. So now we're not talking about inspiration, because when God inspired his word, uh, that was perfect. That was that was completely uh, without any, any uh, difference or error there, of course. But the human element in the process of transmission introduced some variations. But we can see where those are, and we can compare those, and there's nothing of great significance that is diminished or that is changed by those variances, and we can observe them, and we can draw conclusions based on them, and, and that that's a, a process that uh, people can engage in with understanding, with intelligence, with dependence on God, and, and arrive at some conclusions on. But we can still say... All right, here's a, here's a text where one uh, manuscript states it this way, another manuscript states it that way. It may be a phrase or, or different wording or something like that. Um, but we still have the essence of the meaning here, and this is what this passage means. And so that's, that's about as far as I went, just recognizing the reality of yeah. that, pointing out the process, and, and really using it as a means of of strengthening people's confidence in the preserved Word of God versus yeah. diminishing that confidence. And I think that, you know, again, if we've been to seminary or studied all the, you know, the uh, the very high-level scholarly works on this, you can get very uh, detailed oh, yeah. and minute and, and leave people just overwhelmed, you know, <laughs> with it. But I think a pastor just sharing enough to introduce it to people right. so that they know, as you said, when they see in the margin— or they see in a commentary uh, a reference to it to a variant, they understand that. And I think a person who is secure in the doctrine of inspiration and in God's providential preservation is going to be okay with that. They're not going to be confused. It's not going to undermine their faith. 
and they know that we have the Word of God. Y- yep. And so that's that's really the approach that I took with that. So sounds similar to what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, exactly there. what I did, yep. And it takes a lot of wisdom for a pastor, again, to know how far to go. And if somebody wants to know more or they have specific questions, absolutely, he should engage with them and, and talk through it, maybe even do further study. Um, but I think the, the, the regular preaching and teaching, just to be yeah. measured in that— and uh, and approach it wisely. So those further resources is where I should mention the KJV Parallel Bible that I and a bunch of volunteers I put together did. Uh, KJVParallelBible.org. It actually lays out uh, in English all of the translatable differences between the only two Greek New Testament editions, basically that matter. The only two that are actually in use out there. One would be commonly called the Textus Receptus, that underlies the King James, the New King James, and the modern English version, plus a bunch of minor versions that really don't get much press. And then the critical text, which underlies the English Standard Version, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, the NIV, the NLT, on and on. And I show all those differences in English, something that has never been done before that I'm aware of. And what actually stood out to me when I finally put this all together was not the differences between the texts, but it was the similarities. So there's verse after verse after verse that is exactly the same. And even in the places where there are these minor variants, they are truly minor. I mean, they frequently say the same thing in different words. For example, the star either came to rest over baby Jesus in the manger or came and stood over him. There's no doctrinal difference here. I can't discern any real difference in meaning. There's just a slight difference in the metaphor that's used. You know, why that happened, I don't know. In God's good providence, it did. But I think if people can actually look at the differences that are so fought over on the internet, rather than fighting in generalities, look at the specifics. I think they'll actually come away with that same settled faith that you're talking about. I don't think this is something to be scared of. And people do make a major point of those differences, and and they become you know very uh, volatile points of of debate. And Contentious. I think. Yes, and I can't imagine the the labor that it took, you know, for you to put that together. And I'm just going to repeat the name of that, make sure that that we've got that right. So that's kjvparallelbible.org, is that correct? That's exactly it, yes. Okay, so kjvparallelbible.org. What a resource. And and again, if you're shepherding, if you're pastoring somebody to say, hey, let's pull this up, let's look at this, let's look at the things you're referencing or you've heard somebody talk about, and then let's look at the whole scope and see see how those fit within the overall scope of Scripture and, and those differences and, and what they look like. So that's extremely helpful. And there are study guides on there that I put together for pastors to use in just that kind of circumstance. I, I want to add something here. I don't want to skip ahead of you, Dean, but um, this is why I'm so excited to be on a Shepherdology podcast. I have talked to—I've been on several other podcasts, and um, those are more general audience, and there's— there are certain things I emphasize to lay people and certain things I'd emphasize to, you know, fellow academics, but shepherds are the ones really on the front lines of this debate, and they're the ones who see the casualties, and I have done that too, and it's so, so sad to me. I have a definite piece of advice and counsel that I hope is wise and right, um, and not many people have echoed me on this. I feel sort of like I'm shouting this out into the void. But um, I think that if you have somebody who is at all contentious about the King James, even an ounce of it, 
then don't talk about textual criticism with them. Certainly don't argue it with them. Only a shepherd, you know, who knows the sheep can really know which approach should I take. You know, the one we've just been describing where we go ahead and talk through the issues or not. But if somebody's contentious, I would say to them, I'm sorry, I cannot discuss textual criticism with you. I don't see how that could be profitable. Um, Let's talk about what the Bible actually says, which is edification requires intelligibility, 1 Corinthians 14. So let's talk about English because there are other translations in English of the very same texts used by the King James translators, namely the New King James and the Modern English Version. So if somebody in my church says, well, I'm Textus Receptus only, um, I would say, okay, you know, as long as you're not causing division over that and going on a crusade, I can accept that. But I would encourage you, based on 1 Corinthians 14, to use a contemporary English translation of whatever text you prefer. We don't need to argue about textual criticism when the principle I really care about is not how best to do textual criticism, but that we use intelligible words in church so that we can edify one another and so we can understand the Bible when we read it privately. Um, so I, I'm totally willing to give in, actually, on textual criticism. Yeah, I've got my opinion. I've tried to work hard to form a good opinion and a righteous one. But um, to me, that issue pales in comparison to uh, to the principle of 1 Corinthians 14. So I, I would encourage shepherds out there to be ready to actually refuse to talk about textual criticism, despite all the stuff we just said about how important it is. Yes, talk to the, the church about it. But when individuals want to argue with you in particular, don't don't give in. I refuse to talk about that topic if somebody's uh, King James only. Let's let's talk about English. That's that's one of my big attempted contributions to the debate, such as it is. Well, this is a good point to uh, go ahead and talk a little bit about authorized and uh, give us a synopsis of that and how it relates to this issue and how it might be helpful to a pastor. Well, uh, what a softball question. I mean, it's like asking a new mother, what's the nicest thing about your baby? Uh, And then the danger becomes, how do I not praise myself when I talk excitedly about something that I wrote? And here's how I hope I can do that. Let another man praise my book and not my own lips. My book is born out of love. I wrote this book because I love my King James only brothers and sisters, especially the ones that I know personally, and that would especially be the ones who taught me in a Christian school setting in high school, back in what historians call the 1990s. I went to a Christian school where the pastor was and still is a um, a pretty prominent leader in the King James only world. He'll go speak at the colleges and conferences that they have on a regular basis. And I was definitely given the the standard mainstream King James only line. And along with it, I was given a lot of good, a ton of good. I just cannot write these people off, even though I disagree with them on this point. So that's my first point to make. Uh, this is, I didn't write this because I enjoy debate. I can't say that I do. I don't, I do not enjoy strife and, and contentious debate for sure. And this, this debate often, become, often becomes contentious. But um, my book actually sought for a way to make this debate possible. Here's what I mean. Is it really possible that people who cannot read Greek can have a productive discussion about textual criticism? If I were to go to the, I don't know, local academic society for uh, ancient Chinese scholars, um, and and if I had a strong opinion about which, which uh, manuscripts of Confucius's Analects were the best, and if somebody said to me, wait a minute, 
do you read ancient Chinese? And I said, well, no. Then I ought myself to acknowledge I can't actually have a discussion about textual criticism of Confucius's Analects. All I can have a discussion about is which authorities who have opinions on this are most trustworthy. That's a very different discussion. Um, I don't mean to sound insulting. I just don't know. I don't know another way to put this. How can you have a good discussion when you you can't operate on the only level that's really important? You don't read Greek. Um, so I, I think um, my book set Greek and Hebrew aside, and I said, let's talk about English. And that is something that, on the one hand, almost all my readers are experts in. They can produce grammatical English sentences when they speak, and they can do it flawlessly day after day after day. What they're not so used to is describing their English from a linguistic point of view. So they end up getting a little confused. They'll hear, for example, that, yes, okay, English has changed over the centuries since the King James was translated, but English has gotten worse. It has degraded. Well, they don't know what to do with an argument like that because English linguistics isn't their forte. That's something I've spent some time in, and I've tried to make tools of analysis of English available to, um, to common Bible readers. And I've gotten some encouraging feedback that says I've seen some success. I'm really grateful to the Lord for this. So, for example, we talk about, I talk about in my book, um, the, the common thing you'll hear from the King James Only brothers out there, they'll say, well, computerized readability tests have proven that the King James is at a fifth grade reading level. Well, I myself, when I first encountered that argument, I sort of had a gut level feeling, oh, that wasn't right. That, that just can't be right. But I didn't know, I couldn't refute them. I, I didn't know how these tests worked. So I went and did the study and figured out how the tests work and discovered the tests weren't designed to work on archaic English. It's a category mistake. So I have a chapter about that. Or I have a chapter about what I call dead words and false friends. Everybody knows that there are words in the King James we know we don't know, and I call them dead words, obsolete words like besom, chambering, and emerald. But what's not so clear to people is that there are what I call false friends, words we don't know we don't know. Simple words like halt or commend or remove that we still use, but that we use differently than did the Elizabethans back all those centuries ago. Um, given what 1 Corinthians 14 says, I'm helping people apply that truth in a short little book that has jokes in it that my wife approved um, to something they're not as used to looking at in, in detail, which is how does English change over time and how does that affect our ability to fully understand the King James Version? That's what my book is all about. Great, and uh, I enjoy the humor, Mark, for sure, <laughs> so it gets my approval, too. And, and it, honestly, it's a very engaging book, I mean, definitely from a scholarly perspective and and would engage pastors or, or anybody on that level to a degree, but it's just uh, it's truly an enjoyable read, so I think uh, it'd be helpful, you know, for anybody that way, too. So, great, thank you for that um, that description. Let's talk about the idea of, in a church setting again, there being— uh, the use of, of just different translations. Um, some would have the, the approach of, well, we've got to have one standard, and it's going to be this certain one, versus people having access to and using multiple Bible translations. Of course, people have access to them now on their phone or whatever device they're using, but uh, how, how should pastors help people with those multiple translations and engage with that whole 
those options? Are there any that, that pastors should say don't use or be careful of? How should a pastor approach that issue? Wow, there's a lot of questions in there, so many paths to follow. Uh, again, I'm asking shepherds to shepherd, encouraging them to shepherd. Consider who your sheep are. And there was a time when, for five and a half years, I was the shepherd of a small outreach congregation. Um, we're talking kind of 10 people max. And these were people that we brought in on the bus, and they were functionally illiterate, which means they had never read an entire book in their lives, as far as I knew. It didn't mean they couldn't read at all. There's a little difference there. Um, Of course, we did not use the King James Version, but we used only one translation, and I thought that was important. There really wasn't a point in me teaching people who hadn't graduated from high school, who were functionally illiterate, how to compare Bible translations. That was not that would not be a good shepherding of them. Um, but if you've got a fairly standard middle-class, high school-educated congregation, um, you've got a mixture of homeschoolers and college graduates, and you know, again, just probably most pastors out there listening, then I think that an important way to teach doctrine implicitly and to encourage good Bible study is to encourage and model the use of multiple Bible translations. Yes, you'll have a default, you'll have a standard. It's bewildering for people if you use the New American Standard Bible for your Roman series and you use the New International Version for your Ephesian series and the New Living Translation, I don't know, for your Job series, whatever. Yeah, stick with one standard, and most people will end up probably carrying that same Bible to church. But frequently in your preaching, when it's helpful, mention, hey, I checked this other translation, and it really helped me here. See if this helps you. Explain to people why the NIV sounds a little different at places from the ESV, for example. One is more functional or dynamic. One is more what's called formal, or we'll often say literal. Um, Acquaint people with this. Help them to not be afraid, because most of them will not, in God's good providence, I keep using that phrase, have the opportunity to study Greek and Hebrew. They're not called to this. What can they do except accept whatever translation is handed to them. We don't like that as Protestants. The, the translation is not the, the final authority. The originals are. So if another translation helps you glimpse the originals with a little more insight, or I hate to say accuracy, because it's not usually that. It's usually different perspectives on the same truth. We're talking minor things here, like I always read Psalm 16.6 in the King James. I had it memorized. The lions are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. And I didn't realize I was misunderstanding it. Through no fault of the King James translators, I you know, I don't think through a fault of my own. I, I just can't understand everything. But then I read the NIV one day as a, I don't know, 29-year-old. And it said, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And I suddenly understood the metaphor that David was using. Yes, that's a more functional translation. Yes, in a sense, they added, quote unquote, the word boundary. But without that, I didn't understand. And with it, I did. And if my point in reading the Bible is understanding it, then I'm going to welcome every tool that helps me. I really believe that your standard average layperson out there who really wants to read his Bible or her Bible can benefit if taught how, from reading multiple English Bible translations. You know, it isn't always possible to do this, but I've, I've found it helpful. I've tried to do it at times myself if I'm preaching from a passage, and I know that people are looking at different translations, and I might, if there's a key word I'm, I'm really emphasizing or defining or, you know, talking about, 
I'll say now, now you know, my translation says this, uh, loving kindness, let's say. You know, your, your translation may say steadfast love or mercy. And, and it, I think it's a way that a pastor can recognize that people are going to have in their hands a different translation. Excellent. And it kind of draws them together. It acknowledges that and helps them say, oh, that's what you're talking about, because otherwise they could be lost, you know? And so, again, you can't always do that as a pastor. You can't do that with every every phrase or word that you're right. talking about, but key words especially. Right. I think that's one way to do that. Another another issue that comes up is, uh, you know, children's ministries that do a lot of Scripture memory. And I know when we went through the process of, of uh, using a current, going to a current English translation, you know, the question was, well, what are we going to use in the children's program? And we just decided, you know what, we're going to let parents decide. And and we we didn't have all the options on the table, but we had three good options on the table there that they could choose from. You know, they could use the King James, and or they could keep doing that, or there were a couple different ones. And it was some extra work for the the children's workers and the people listening to memory verses. But we thought, you know, it's okay. We can we can adapt with that. And again, just a way of accommodating that and not not just opening it up to anything goes sure but definitely to the good solid translations that you know that people might be using so any other thoughts you have on that just on acknowledging accommodating the multiple translation well i have to go back a little further and praise you for another thing here you get so such high shepherding marks in my book nobody's checking my book but you're getting high marks because you um the way you talked about using multiple translations in preaching is exactly right. You can't do it all the time. It just gets bewildering to people. But if you do it at key times, it bring them, brings them together, makes them aware, and makes them not afraid of this, which is the reverse of what I too frequently hear from otherwise excellent pastors whom I love and respect, okay? What they'll do is they'll, they themselves will be like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that the NIV translators did thus and so in this passage. And they express their frustration to the people. And what is every single person in there going to do? They're going to think, oh, the NIV, mm, I'm not even going to bother with that if they do such unaccountably weird things. Well, you've just destroyed the trust that people ought to have in the NIV. Now, I'm talking probably certainly to, uh, to conservative, evangelical, and even fundamentalist uh, pastors out there just like me. I know that we have kind of a cultural taboo against the NIV. But I would, I still say we ought to have trust in it. What do I mean? Not that we trust that it's perfect. It's not. Not even that we trust that its philosophy is exactly right. No. But given their philosophy, these were men and women like Doug Moo, who wrote the top commentary on Romans, uh, widely acknowledged, who are just trying to teach the Bible to the church. And frequently they're helpful. I don't want to cut my people off from that. Same thing with the second issue you raised there. Again, you get high marks from me. Um, because uh, when I when I come to a children's uh, ministry, for example, and I, I look at the hassle it's going to create for me to have to make it possible for multiple translations to be used, I mean, it cuts off the opportunity for the whole class to do scripture memory altogether. That's a pretty big loss. I, I've got to remember something here. Um, that is that it is, in one sense, an accident of history that we were able to have a common standard English Bible translation for so long. Why should we assume that that's the way it's always going to be? The fact is, it's not always going to be that way, and it seems very unlikely that we'll ever recover that situation. 
the reasons we had it had to do with the size of the English-speaking world and the fact that it was ruled by a monarchy. I mean, it's just not going to happen again. So what silver linings can we look for in this dark cloud of having to have multiple translation? Well, actually, I think the silver linings are pretty nice. It is really a great Bible study tool to have multiple translations. So what am I doing when I make multiple translations available uh, for the children's ministry? I, I'm telling the whole church, multiple translations are a good thing. We can all live with one another despite our preferences for this one or that one. It's not the end of the world. In fact, let's let's see if we can find some good in this situation. Like when two kids in seventh grade are in a Sunday school and a verse comes up, one of them memorized it in the New American Standard Bible, one of them memorized it in the King James Version, and there's an apparent discrepancy. To me, that's exciting because what's everyone in the, in the class going to do? They're going to perk their heads up and say, oh, here's, an, here's a conflict or here's a, here's a difference. What people are going to be interested. Uh, and I can capitalize on that as a teacher and say, well, hey, take a look at this. And did you consider this? I'm not threatened by these differences. I'm energized by them. And I would like to see shepherds out there doing the same thing and doing the same thing you did. Pastors are naturally protective of their their people, and rightfully so. But I think you've used a key word through through their fear. Um, we we don't have to be afraid of good, solid translations and of the differences that you know that, that may be there that people are seeing, and we don't have to be controlling either. Um, and I think there's an element of trust that we can have that. Mature church members uh, want the word. They're not just trying to be maverick and, you know, um, all that, but just that they want the word, they want to understand it, and so I can trust that the Holy Spirit's going to guide them in understanding of the truth and also caution them if there's a problem. And so I, I don't have to be fearful. I don't have to be controlling. I can be protective, but also have an element of trust there as well um, in that. So... Would you say there's a time when a pastor should caution or even warn people against certain translations? The the big translation that people uh, immediately think of when this question arises is the message by Eugene Peterson. And if somebody is thinking this is a translation rather than a paraphrase, then yes, I want to clarify. I mean, if they genuinely think that Psalm 1 in the Hebrew really says smart mouth college, which is wording in the message, then I want to clarify for them, no, this is this is not just a translation. It, there are elements of that in the message, but it's a transculturation. He's trying to put these things in a way we might do it today. Um, that both gives me license to caution somebody that, yeah, you know, I don't think you probably ought to be doing your devotions year after year out of the message. But on the other hand, encourage them like, hey, do you ever need to get out of a a, a Bible reading rut and read something that just kind of shows you a new vista on the Bible, makes you think of it in somewhat different terms? Uh, the message can be a great Bible study tool. I I use it. Um, so there's caution and encouragement. Where I, where I would just have caution is in some idiosyncratic projects out there. One is called the Passion Translation, and another is called the Pure Word. And there are these, there are several other things like it. These are two, especially the Passion Translation, that have actually gotten some press. Um, I won't go into all the details, but they are simply irresponsible. 
they don't know what they're doing, and I don't have the fundamental trust in them that I do have in the other major standard evangelical English Bible translations. If you can see an English Bible translation on the shelf at your local Christian bookstore, and there's 30 or 50 or 100 copies, probably it has made it through the right kind of vetting processes that would lead me to say, basically, you can have confidence in it. But yes, okay, there are a couple, you know, outliers out there that at least you need to accurately understand what they're trying and not trying to do. Um, And a few that I'd say, yeah, just better to stay away from. I think pastors do need to teach their people the fundamental principles of translation and then where popular translations fit in those on that spectrum you know, yeah. from the very formal equivalent across into the dynamic and then the paraphrase, and and then uh, here's what I think about it, you know, uh, other end of the, of the scale there. And so pastors can really help people by equipping them with that knowledge. Yes. I want to circle back, uh, Mark, to something, because I've, I've read, I think, in, in some of your blog posts, and we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, that you are encouraging Christian leaders of organizations, and I'm thinking especially parachurch organizations, to to make the, the transition from using only the King James translation of the Bible in their ministries to opening that up to current English translations. And can you just talk about that a little bit, and maybe what, from your your perspective, what advice would you give them? So 22-year-old people raised in conservative circles, like I was for an entire year, uh, their opinions are generally regarded as upstart, and I think generally rightly so. Why? Because they don't have the full context that is guiding the older men who they often criticize and are resentful toward. Uh, Praise God, I think when I was 22, I had some modicum of awareness that I don't know enough yet to say anything publicly. So I waited till nearly age 40 to write that blog post. And I've been in church leadership now myself, and I've had contact with institutions, parachurch institutions, like you mentioned. Um, And so I couched this carefully. I said in that article, especially one that I wrote appealing to leaders of camps and schools and mission boards, and basically my conservative circle, to consider moving away from the King James Version, or certainly exclusive use of it. Um, I said, yes, the, the maintenance of this institution is important. And I would expect that for a time, you're going to transition and and think, you know, I'd really love to be using a contemporary English translation right now, but if I move too quickly, our constituency just won't have it. And I, I totally sympathize and understand with somebody who says that. Um, what I would say to them is, number one, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 says you shouldn't be satisfied with the situation. Make some steps. Certainly don't paint yourself into a corner where your doctrinal statement is saying we have to use this one translation, the King James Version. Um, you know, secondarily, maybe I'd say um, start uh, 
talking to the board about when they think a change would be appropriate. I asked the director at the Christian camp I worked at when I was 19. I asked him, when do you think we can move away from the King James Version? Because I was seeing problems. My campers were not understanding the memory verses. And I've always been manic. I mean, manic about this. (laughs) Making sure that kids understand the words that they're parroting back to me. I, I just never satisfied me for them to get the syllables right. I wanted them to understand. What's the whole point? otherwise. Okay, so um, yes, it's important to maintain the institution, but 1 Corinthians 14 is more important. That's the next big thing I'd say. You know, why do we even have these parachurch institutions? It's because we want to teach and preach the Bible. We want to disciple the nations. And is the King James Version so far into unintelligible territory like the Latin Vulgate that it's a sin to use it? No, I would not say that. We're not there yet. But we are on our way. And I have been in situations, many, many situations, in which I'm sitting next to teenagers or junior hires or kids, and the preacher up there at the camp is saying something, and I understand him, but I know my kids do not understand it. For a while, we can put up with that. Because, uh, you know, the institution is valuable in itself. But me personally, in my conscience, and I think a good conscience of a, a leader out there who just wants to get the Bible to people, I'm saying don't be satisfied with that and let 1 Corinthians 14 goad you into making some step toward change, even if it takes 30 years, hopefully not that long. Do, do something. That was my appeal. Great uh prompts to our thinking and good good counsel there, and I hope that that will have an impact, Mark. Thank you. Well, is there anything else that you think would be helpful to pastors dealing with this issue in their churches? I have gone to some trouble and even expense. You know, I didn't get in this for the money, despite what a very few critics have said in nasty comments online. They're out there. Uh, mostly, by the way, I've I've heard even from critics, they've been very gracious to me. I've really had some wonderful conversations. I worked really hard to make my book gracious. And I'm glad to say that Spirit-Filled Brothers on the other side of this issue have responded to me often in kind. Um, but I've gone to some trouble to put basically all the material in Authorize, you know, all the essence of it, uh, just kind of minus the footnotes, onto a series of YouTube videos. Quite recently, I did this as we record here. And um, so anybody who wants to know what I'm all about can go look. Um, And I'm trying to produce content even this very day for my YouTube channel to help people who are still reading the King James Version to understand the dead words and especially the false friends that I've been able to discern over time and still, you know, frequently have new ones brought to my attention, things I didn't realize I was misunderstanding. So um, I would just encourage anybody out there listening to, uh, if this interests you at all, um, go get some of the free stuff I put out there on this. It's pretty nerdy, though I try to make it as accessible as possible. Um, My YouTube channel, you can just search for Mark Ward. Excellent. Okay, so the book is Authorized, the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. And then the YouTube channel, look up Mark Ward, and uh, I can tell my pastor friends that, again, you'll find it informative and helpful, but also enjoyable, just like the book. So I think that you'll benefit from that in uh, from various standpoints there. So, Mark, I really appreciate the work you've done, the product that you've made available, your heart in it, which comes through very, very clearly. And so thank you for your just your, your burden, your investment for pastors and for believers 
And ultimately, it's about the Word of God and the glory of God and His purpose, and that's what it's all about. And so thank you so much for your passion for that that comes through very clearly. So really appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you for your kind words, and I just have to say I sense that same heart. When I read your book on The Growing Church, we're aiming at the same thing um, through somewhat different angles. We just want people to grow to what the King James calls the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'm in it with you. We're on the same team. Thank you. Well, that's very helpful stuff. I hope it might provide wisdom to you if you're working through this issue. Now, I want to mention this will be the last Shepherdology episode of this season. I'll be taking the next few months off and plan to pick it up again in the fall. I really appreciate the feedback I receive from many of you. I'm so very glad that this little podcast is reaching and encouraging pastors, and that is my prayer. Wow, this is a unique time to minister So I'm going to just take a minute and pray for you, as I often do here on Shepherdology. So would you just join me in your heart in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the men who are listening to this podcast, who are serving you as shepherds, shepherding the flock of God, as we have been instructed to do. And Father, they need real wisdom for these unusual days. They need endurance and the strength to persevere through challenging seasons of life and ministry. And Father, they just need special grace to know how to love and care for and minister the Word to their people and care for them spiritually. So I pray right now for my pastor friends, Father, that you would uphold them, give them stamina, give them just a calmness in their hearts and a peace in their hearts. Help them to know that regardless of the difficult circumstances, that you are working through them and using them as they shepherd your people. Father, we love you. Thank you for the privilege of serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's get together again, my friend, and we'll talk shepherdology.